We are beginning a new series today. Uh, the, the, this year I'm planning on taking us through the second letter Paul, well it's not the second he wrote, but it's the second we have that he wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, they say that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We tend to view maturity as this process by which we grow stronger, wiser, better able to face the challenges of life. What if we got it all wrong? What if our goal as we grow and mature isn't to become stronger, more independent? What if we need to actually become weaker, more dependent? Today we're beginning this new series in the book of 2 Corinthians and I want to invite you as we get started to open your heart and mind to a radically different valuation of your life in Jesus. As I've been reading through this letter, it strikes me that Paul is asking us to go deep in the faith, to actually embrace a deeper, more mature experience of our faith in Christ. And I hope you're excited to be on this journey. I think this is uh, glorious, but it's, it's going to be difficult as well. I've titled today's message, Boasting in Affliction. And we're going to start out uh, the first 14 verses of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Timothy to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul opens his letters. Now he's following the convention of the day. Normally we at the beginning say who we're writing to and then at the very end we say who wrote the letter. You know, sincerely, whatever, love, whatever, and then we put our name at the end. In antiquity, you actually began by saying who's the person writing the letter. And then you said who the letter was being addressed to. And then you uh, spoke a blessing on the recipient of your letter. That was kind of the standard procedure. So this is Paul's opening to his letter, and he begins by identifying himself. He's not the only one writing this letter. He's accompanied by Timothy. Uh, but I love the way Paul describes himself as apostle of Christ Jesus. That word apostle means somebody sent. An apostle is somebody who has been uh, commissioned by another person to go forth and their uh, job is to represent the interests of the one who sent him. Uh, Paul is an apostle. He is an envoy. Somebody sent in representation of Jesus. And Paul consistently in his letters, that's the way he describes himself. He is not out there trying to make a name for himself. He is not trying to become the latest influencer. He is out there simply trying to represent the interests of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he says even this job that he's been given, this task of going to the nations of the world and representing Christ before a world that does not know him, that that was not some great plan he had, something he came up with. If you know the story of Paul's conversion, Right the moment when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, when he recovered his sight, God made it very clear to him. Jesus told him, I'm going to send you to the nations, to the Gentiles, and you're going to share what I have given you to share. 
So it was not Paul's idea. It was not his desire or his plan to do this. It was the will of God that sent Paul on these journeys that landed him eventually in Corinth where he founded the church he's writing to now. And he's accompanied by brother Timothy. Timothy had joined Paul on his second missionary journey as he made his way through the region, Roman region of Galatia, and he had accompanied him as he arrived finally in Corinth and spent a year and a half there establishing the church in Corinth. Timothy was right by his side. So Timothy uh, is somebody that the Corinthians have known from the very first moment they began to form as a congregation. So uh, Paul reminds them of the beautiful family we become in Christ by describing Timothy as brother Timothy. Isn't it shocking or amazing that, you know, Timothy was from the region of Galatia, very far away. I mean, it was several months travel to get to Corinth, and yet God had brought their lives together in such an intimate way. And we've experienced that here in this church. We have people here that are family that uh, grew up on the other side of the world. God is great in, in drawing us together into this. And then he writes to, he identifies who he's writing to, and I think it's very important to pay attention to how, God, how uh, Paul describes the people who are receiving his letter, the church of God, the gathering, the congregation of God that is in Corinth. And if you know from his first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians, there's a, there was a problem in Corinth that uh, people were claiming, I am of Cephas or Peter, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. Uh, everyone was claiming to belong to these different leaders within the life of the church and Paul had to remind them in 1 Corinthians and he's opening 2 Corinthians with the same reminder, the church does not belong to Paul. It does not belong to Peter. It does not belong to Apollos. It does not belong to any of us. The church belongs to God. It is God's church. So he's writing to the church that belongs to God. And let's, let's make this more granular. Let's talk about individuals with all the saints who are in all Achaia. And Achaia is what the Romans had called the region we would call Greece today. The whole region um, so there are other believers that apparently are in the faith as a result of God's work in Corinth, in that whole region of Achaia. So he wants this letter to be circulated in that whole region. And he describes the people he's writing to as saints. And that word means set apart. And the idea is set apart to God. That you are set apart exclusively for his purposes and for his belonging. So it's a reminder, not only that the church doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God, but that you yourself don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. That's what it means to be a saint. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ and we have sold ourselves back to God and he owns us. We are his and we have been set apart for him, for his good purposes and his blessing. Grace to you and peace. Paul plays a little bit with uh, the traditional uh, greeting. Uh, in Greek, uh, the traditional way you would greet someone is with the word chiron. Uh, and that just means greetings, chiron. It's kind of like saying hello. He changes that to something a whole lot more significant with a very similar word, charis, grace. 
So instead of just greetings, he speaks the very grace of God, the kindness that is unmerited from God. And then he throws in the traditional Hebrew greeting, which was shalom, peace. Grace and peace to you from God. And how does he describe God? He describes him as father, which speaks to the loving intimacy we have with God. He's as close and dear to us as a loving father, but also he is Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the official title, right? Christ, Messiah, anointed one, the promised King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord over all creation. So both the intimacy of God as Father and the transcendence of God as Lord of all. That's who we are receiving this grace and peace from. So what does he have to say in this letter? Paul doesn't waste time. He gets right into it. Let's go on in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who is comforting us in all our afflictions so we might be enabled to comfort those who are in any affliction through the comfort with which we ourselves are being comforted by God. Because just as the sufferings of Christ are overflowing into us, so also through Christ is overflowing our comfort. Paul begins by blessing God. Uh, And again, using both of those titles, Father and Lord. And then he describes God as the Father of mercies. Mercy is... It's similar to grace. Grace is when you receive a kindness you did nothing to earn. Mercy is when you don't receive an unkindness you do deserve. Right? You've done something wrong. You deserve to uh, be punished for what you did. There should be a negative consequence to what you did, and instead you find mercy. It's a beautiful thing, mental picture for me to think of God as the father of mercy. Anywhere I see mercy happening in the world around me, anywhere there is a kindness extended rather than the punishment that is deserved, we are seeing the work of a child of God. Those mercies themselves are the children of God in the world at work. He is the God of all comfort. Paul is saying that if there is any comfort to be found in this world, it can all be traced back to God. There is no comfort that exists apart from God's goodness and kindness. It all traces back to him. He is the God of all comfort. And Paul says that God is comforting us in all our afflictions. I want you to get comfortable with these words because Paul is going to use them throughout the whole letter. He's going to use this Greek word that we translate comfort. It can also be translated encouragement or it can also in some circumstances have the idea of an appeal or an entreaty. Uh, I appeal to you. Uh, Sometimes it's used that way. That word is found in this letter 29 times. 
And uh, another word he uses a lot, affliction, which could be translated affliction, distress, trouble, oppression. That word occurs 12 times. The word suffering occurs four times. Paul's going to spend a lot of time in his letter talking about unfun things in our life, afflictions. But he's also going to spend a lot of time talking about comfort, what God is doing in response to that. And he says that God is comforting us in all our afflictions. But Paul also doesn't leave it at that. And you might think that that's the extent of it, that God's job is when I suffer to provide me with the comfort I need and that I need to find my affliction uh, dealt with by God. If I'm hurting, I need God to provide healing. I need God to uh, bring an end to the affliction. That's not why Paul says God is doing all of this. And there's, this is a very important truth about the gospel. There is a false version of the gospel in which faith in Jesus is the way you don't suffer. If you put your trust in Jesus, then you're not going to suffer. You're not going to face any hardship in life because he will put a wall around you and you will be completely protected from anything unpleasant in life. That doesn't work. And if you have followed Christ for any amount of time, you know in your bones that that is not how it works. God allows afflictions. Why? Well, Paul says God comforts us in all our afflictions. So you might think, well, then God allows afflictions so that when we suffer, he can uh, step in and provide comfort, and that that might seem a little self-serving, right? So God lets us suffer so that when he comforts us, we look to him and are grateful to him and depend on him. Is this some kind of manipulative ploy on God's part? to allow us to suffer so that we recognize we need him? Well, that's not at all what's going on. And here's our problem. We're so self-centered, we think we're the only reason for our suffering. It's all about me. Paul says that's not at all what your afflictions are about. God is comforting us in all our afflictions so that we might be enabled to comfort those who are in any affliction through the comfort with which we ourselves are being comforted by God. Why does God allow me to be afflicted? And then why does God comfort me in my affliction? It's not just so that I'm happy. It's because that process enables me to comfort somebody beside me who is also afflicted. You know, the least useful Christian is the Christian who has never had anything bad happen to him. And sometimes that's where we are in life. We're young, we haven't lived long, we haven't yet experienced tragedy firsthand. We've seen it kind of at a distance. Uh, When somebody, when the the world falls out, uh, the, the, the ground crumbles beneath you and you are left free falling, you do not turn to the person who's never lost anything for help. You turn to the person who's gone through that exact same thing and they're still here. 
And when we suffer and God comforts us, what he is doing is he is equipping us to provide the comfort that the people around us are going to need. There's so much suffering in this world. It's everywhere. People are agonizing constantly. And if we as Christians want nothing more than to be isolated from this, we are no use to a God who wants to help a suffering world. So God invites us to share an affliction so that as we experience it, you know that God knows what it is to lose an only child? to watch him die. We're told in Hebrews that it was only through what he suffered that Jesus became the perfect author of salvation, the perfect intercessor because he knew what we are going through in a way he did not know before the incarnation. God is doing the same in our lives. Affliction becomes the way in which he enables us to provide comfort to a world around us that is falling apart, that is broken. Any affliction. Notice God wants to use us to respond to any suffering out there. How ugly is the suffering around us? Well, God has to allow that in our lives if we're going to be equipped to help. Just as the sufferings of Christ are overflowing into us, and I don't think Paul there is saying that somehow we participate in Christ's redemptive act on the cross. On the cross, Christ bore for the sins of the world alone. We have no, no participation in that. We don't do that. But Christ died to save the world, and yet so much of the world is not saved because even though he has paid the price in full and even though he has extended the forgiveness and the healing and the restoration necessary as a free gift, still so many want nothing to do with him. They have their own plans for their lives. They have their own things they want to do. And even though their lives are shambles and they're broken and have nothing to face what's happening to them with, they still don't want God to change anything. They're convinced they're on the right path. You don't think that causes suffering to God? That the world he loved enough to die for rejects him? That he is ridiculed? by the very ones he shed his blood to redeem, we share in those sufferings. They overflow into our lives. In Paul's life, this had meant multiple beatings, being flogged and whipped and beaten with rods, being stoned and left for dead. Uh, it meant people slandering him and accusing him of things falsely. It meant all kinds of hatred people who would uh, make a vow to not eat or drink until they had murdered Paul. Paul. Paul describes this as these sufferings of Christ are just overflowing over us. But he says just the way these sufferings overflow into us, so also through Christ is overflowing the comfort. Now here's what God's committed himself to. He's not going to allow any suffering that he is not going to provide the healing for. He's going to heal every wound. 
He's going to restore every broken heart. If we will put our trust in him, he has got it covered. And in that process, he is preparing us to reach out to a world that is broken around us. It's time to mature and to leave behind the self-centered attitude of, of infancy. It's true, if you're a baby, you don't care about mom and dad, you care about you. You're not equipped to do anything more than that, but God didn't design us to stay babies. He designed us to become parents, people who sacrifice themselves for others, who give up of themselves for others. And it needs to be more than just parenting. That needs to become our way of living in this world. We are here for the good of the world. Not for ourselves. Let's keep on, verse 6. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort from he who works in the endurance of the same sufferings which we also are suffering. And our hope for you is firm, knowing that as you are participants in the suffering, so also will you be in the comfort. Let's unpack a little bit of that. He says, we're afflicted, but our affliction is providing you comfort and salvation. How's that true in Paul's case? Well, before Paul ever made it to Corinth, he had suffered a lot of things. He was unjustly beaten and flogged and chained in Philippi up in Macedonia on his way down to Corinth. He was chased out of uh, Thessalonica and then chased out of Berea by people who, who hated him and wanted to destroy everything he was trying to do. Paul suffered much before he even made it to Corinth. And you know what that meant? That when he came there to share the gospel with them, he had a ton of comfort to offer people who are broken people who are hurting. And he shared the gospel from that place of God having comforted him. Salvation. God has used all of these afflictions to hone Paul, to shape his understanding of the gospel so that when he sits down and writes to the Corinthian believers, he's not sharing some... uh, puffy, uh, powder puff girl's version of the gospel. This is the real thing. It's lived through the fire. And the result for the Corinthians has been that they have received not only comfort, but salvation through what God has been doing in Paul's life and in Timothy's life. If we're afflicted, you are benefiting because it is providing you necessary comfort. It's been the reason you're saved. God has used our affliction to save you. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort. They loved Paul, and when God comforts Paul, they share in that comfort and celebrate it with him. And now Paul helps his readers understand that what he's talking about in himself also applies to them. Because the same God who does this in Paul's life is the same God who works in the endurance of the same sufferings in anybody else that we're suffering right now. So as you are afflicted and as you are suffering, God is doing the same thing in your life that he's doing in ours, Paul is saying. 
God works when you don't throw in the towel, when you endure, when you cling to him tenaciously through the fire. God is at work bringing comfort that equips you to comfort others. Our hope for you is firm. This isn't wishful thinking. We are solid, grounded, knowing that you are participants in the sufferings, but just as you participate in suffering, you also are going to participate in the comfort. Paul is not worried about the Corinthians' suffering. He's not worried about hardships or afflictions coming upon them because he knows that the God of all comfort is not only going to comfort them, but in doing so, he is going to equip them to turn the world upside down. All Christians are afflicted. This isn't just something leaders face. This isn't just something apostles face. This is something that God does in all who are participants in suffering. And before I keep reading, I want to read to you a few verses from Acts 19, verses 11 through 20, because Paul writes this letter from Ephesus. He's on his third missionary journey. His first missionary journey, he goes up uh, and starts some churches in the region of Galatia. The second missionary journey, he visits those churches, and then he wants to go further uh, west to Ephesus, which is kind of the center of Asia Minor, but God doesn't allow it, so he ends up going north and ends up in Macedonia, and that's where he goes to Thessalonica and Berea and is chased out of there and ends up going down into Greece, the region of Achaia, and ends up passing through Athens and finally in Corinth and spends 18 months in Corinth in his second missionary journey, and there God establishes a congregation that remains. So now he's on his third missionary journey. And he's visited again the churches uh, in, in Galatia. But now God has allowed him to go straight across into Ephesus. And now Paul is in the middle of ministry in Ephesus. From Ephesus, he writes 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. I want you to know that the place where Paul is as he writes these two letters, this is the most powerful and successful period of his ministry that we know about. And let me read the description of it from Acts 19, 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is in Ephesus. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil, priest, uh, evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic, ma magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. In today's money, that's in the millions of dollars. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I want you to know that this is what God was doing in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter. You might be surprised as we read this letter that Paul never mentions any of this. He never says, yeah, God's really doing a thing through me. I mean, people, even handkerchiefs, hankies I've happened to touch, they're throwing them on people, they're getting healed. People are trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus that I preach, and the demons know who I am, but they, they say, who are you, bozos? And everybody's so impressed with Jesus by all that I'm doing, he never says a word about that. You know what he does want to talk about? His afflictions. So let's see what he has to say in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, siblings, concerning our affliction that took place in Asia, that we were burdened utterly beyond our strength so that we despaired even of living. But we have had the death sentence in ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who has delivered us from such a great death and will deliver us, in whom we have hoped that he too will yet deliver. As you also join in helping us through prayer, so that as grace is given to us through the many, thanks may be given because of us. This might be the most personal of Paul's letters. I feel like Paul in this letter just lays open his heart and says, guys, let me, let me just tell you what I'm going through. And we think, I think sometimes, that great leaders in the faith are stoic and that they stand before the, the threats and the challenges and the afflictions of doing ministry with stoic resolve and they never crumble under the pressure. Paul does not describe himself that way at all. In fact, he says, I want you to know this about me. I don't want you to be unaware of this. I want you to know exactly what I've been going through. I faced an affliction, and I don't know what this was. The book of Acts doesn't spell it out for us, and Paul doesn't give details. Some, something was going on. And when he says Asia, that was the Roman province of Asia, which would be Turkey today. But he says, here's what's happened. We had a burden thrown on our backs that was just, it was overwhelming. I mean, it was so far beyond, utterly beyond anything we were capable of bearing. It was beyond our strength. So that we even despaired of living. We thought, this is it. I, I can't take it. This is the end of me. Paul is so honest about that. I don't know a lot of people that lead with that kind of transparency, but Paul did. Uh, and he wrote down things that people he knew would probably use against him because they were already accusing him of being weak. Uh, 
Paul seems to double down on that and wants to highlight just how weak he is. That he faced a circumstance that was so absolutely overwhelming that he despaired of life itself. Like they had a death sentence handed out against them. They were toast. It was over. There was no coming back from this. And he says, you know why God let this happen to us? So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God. Have you found yourself in a moment like that in life where you just don't have the strength to take one more step? Where what has fallen upon you is so far beyond anything you are equipped to handle that you can't deal with it. When God allows that, he's helping you discover one of the core realities of human existence. We were never created to do this on our own. We were created by God for God. And as long as we try to do this life without him, we are going to utterly fail. Paul didn't have the strength to face what was coming at him, but he did have God. That's all he had. That's all he had to throw up before what came on him. His trust in God who raises the dead. And you know, he thought the death sentence, I don't think he's being poetic. I think he thought we're not making it out of this one. But I will trust the God who raises the dead. And if this ends in my death, then I am fully dependent on the God who's not going to let that be the end of the story for me. And in his case, in this moment, Paul, God intervened by actually delivering Paul from that death. He's delivered us from such a great death. And he said, that's the kind of God we're serving. And he will continue to deliver us. And even when we face the actual physical death, he will still be the one who delivers us from death. And he says, while we're going through all of this, you guys have joined us. You've been helping us through prayer. You guys have been interceding on our behalf and God has heard your prayers and has responded by delivering us. And here's the thing, God has extended grace in response to the requests of many. The result then is that when God extends that grace, the many who have been so invested in pleading with God for that grace now can praise God for what he's done. Paul sees his affliction not only as equipping him to better help those who are afflicted, but also as something that strengthens the, and encourages those around him who are participating with him in these afflictions. Every time God extends his grace and comfort, we uh, are turned back to God in praise. And our own walk with him is made deeper and better. We have to fix our eyes, not on ourselves, but on God. Verse 12, for our boast is this. Let me tell you, that's another word we're gonna run across a lot. 29 times in this letter, Paul uses the word boast as a verb, as a noun. 
And you might think that's an odd word to throw around. We don't talk about bragging, right? We shouldn't as Christians. That's kind of unseemly for us to boast, to brag. But here's the thing. Uh, One of the things Paul is addressing in this letter, there are people around who are trying to uh, discredit Paul in his absence and say he's weak. Yeah, he writes all these cool letters, but man, when you see him face to face, there's nothing to him. There's, he's, uh, just ignore him. He's, there's, he has nothing to do. He's not a real apostle. He's, uh, and, and they're peddling some kind of triumphalist version of the gospel where they are very arrogantly boasting about all the powers and great things they have because they are servants of Christ. And Paul is countering that in this letter. So he's going to use their own language of boasting. But I want you to pay real close attention to the kinds of things Paul says we should be boasting about. What is his boast? Here is where I would expect him to say, well, I, I, I had a hanky I left the other day and somebody grabbed it and put it on a sick person and they were healed. That's something to brag about. He didn't say anything about that. I preached so powerfully, the conviction of God fell so mightily on the people of this city that they burned millions of dollars of worth of magic spell books. What a deliverance. Paul doesn't boast about that. What does he boast about? The witness of our conscience. That in plain speech and godly sincerity and not in fleshly wisdom but by God's grace we have conducted ourselves in the world and even more so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. But I hope that you will understand to the end just as you also understood us in part because we are your cause for boasting even as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. What does he boast about? He says, uh, my own conscience within bears witness that this is what I have been doing in the world. I have been speaking plainly. I'm not manipulating anybody. I'm not trying to twist the truth to my advantage somehow. I'm not being deceptive. I am speaking in plain speech in everything I'm doing. And I am operating in a sincerity that God has taught me to live in. Because the Paul before Jesus did not live in this sincerity. He was chasing the glory of being the best rabbi of his day. He found something totally different when he came to Christ. He found a godly sincerity where he didn't have to pretend to be some great thing, where he could openly and honestly write a a letter and send it out to the world and say, I was so overwhelmed by this, I thought life was done. Me, the great apostle and leader, that's who I am. Because without Jesus, I am toast. I am nothing. Don't look to me, look to Jesus. That kind of sincerity came into Paul's life because of God. And he says it's not fleshly wisdom. Now before Christ, Paul had a lot of that. Paul was a gifted person. He was uh, a genius. His mental ability to think through deep, profound theological truths is unparalleled. He was a great thinker. But he says that's not 
I wish I knew what's causing this. He says, that's not what's uh, behind what I've been up to. I haven't tried to use my intellect to somehow overwhelm you with these grand arguments. I haven't operated. And for Paul, flesh was kind of his shorthand for what I can do on my own apart from God. What I bring to the table without God. He says, the, the kind of wisdom I have been operating out of is not the wisdom I had before Christ. This intelligence, this ability to reason through things, this, I thought I had it all worked out. And when I came to Christ, I realized I was absolutely wrong about everything. And he has been sharing his wisdom with me. And he has instructed me through affliction and has taught me a lot that I have then shared. But that's what I've been operating out of, not some kind of wisdom that I have generated but the very wisdom of God mediated through his grace, by God's grace. That's the way we've been working in the world and even more so among you. And here, it, as we get deeper into the letter, it will become clear that people are accusing Paul of somehow manipulating the Corinthians for his own benefit and Paul's reminding them, guys, think about it. When have I ever done that among you? If we have been careful in the world to behave sincerely and openly and honestly, you know doubly so that we did that when we were among you. We're not writing anything other than what you see in front of you. There's no hidden agenda. There's nothing hidden going on behind the scenes here. What I'm writing to you is the God's honest truth of what's on my heart. Clearly, Paul is being flat out honest in this letter. And he says, you understand what I'm saying. And then he realizes, well, maybe some of the stuff I'm saying is going to take some time to sink in. I hope uh, that you will understand to the end. I hope that what I am sharing with you will take root in your heart and, and that you'll hang on to it and see it through as far as God intends it to go. You've understood us in part. And here's what he says. You want to talk about boasting? We are your cause for boasting. Not the super leaders, not the super apostles, not the guys who are walking around parading themselves as some grand thing, but this broken apostle who is weak and powerless. This is your boast. You need to learn to boast in someone who is fragile enough to recognize that without Christ he has nothing. And you are ours What God has done in you, that's what we're going to brag about. And, and the same thing works for the Corinthians. What God is doing in Paul is what they need to be bragging about so that the attention is not ourselves, but the activity of God. Paul will spell it out later in the letter. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. That theme is going to be working its way through the letter. There is a Christian boast. It's the boast that we belong to the God of all comfort and that he is so glorious and so good that he provides comfort for every suffering and affliction 
if we will but turn to him and that when we do so, he not only uh, uh, comforts us, but in doing so, equips us with comfort to extend to a world around us that is dying, that is suffering. We all suffer, every one of us. The nature of it may vary, but it's a constant presence in our lives. <clears throat> we want to be free from it. Uh, we want to be protected, isolated, but God doesn't do that. He allows the very same afflictions that everyone else is facing to hit us as well. We lose loved ones unexpectedly and tragically just like everybody else. Sometimes we get cancer and die just like everybody else. Sometimes we lose our jobs. Sometimes we face depression. We're not in any way exempt from any of the sufferings that surround us. There's a reason God doesn't shield us from this. He's going to provide us with all the comfort we need not only to weather these afflictions ourselves, but in doing this, he's going to equip us so that we can extend the needed comfort to those around us who are suffering. Just as Jesus joined us in our suffering, we too have to be willing to join others in theirs. Now we have a comfort to provide that God gave to us, something we didn't have on our own. And this becomes our goal in life, to boast in God and the comfort he extends in and through our lives. We're gonna sing a song right now, and this is the time in our worship where we can respond to what God has been saying to us through his word. I want to call out to you today, if you have not surrendered your heart to Jesus, if you have not become one of those saints, one of those whose lives are purchased by God, belong to him, and everything you are and ever will be belongs to him. If that's not you this morning, I want to challenge you to reach out to Jesus and surrender. To stop trying to face this life on your own. God, the God of all mercy and all comfort, has every comfort provided for your life and heart, but you must surrender it to him. If that's you this morning, I want to challenge you to come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. What I am is up to you. Everything I am, I hand over to you. Make of my life something glorious. Maybe you already know Christ. God's challenging you to go deeper, to move beyond the self-centered faith of a baby and embrace the idea of maturing in Christ, where you willingly open yourself up to participate in the sufferings of Christ so that God can equip you to participate in the comfort Christ gives. Maybe you need to come today and say, God, I'm willing. Use my life any way you see fit to do any good you see fit. I surrender it to you. 
Whatever God has put on your heart, God's word is an invitation to us to respond. This is your time to respond. Let's all stand. We're going to have some people here at the front to help us. Uh, Whatever God's put on your heart, come to the front here. uh, Shake their hand. Share with them what God has put on your heart. And let them pray with you and encourage you. Come while we sing.